you're very lucky if you can have 51% of the people that continue to support you. So all of those people who I think liked me and respected me before I became mayor, when I had to make decisions that negatively impacted their lives, then that started to change the relationships. So that was very difficult for me, but it was something that had to be done. Somebody had to do it, and uh, I found myself in the position of doing that. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. we got a very special show this week. We're talking to Hall of Fame basketball star and former mayor of Detroit, Dave Bing, on the occasion of his new book, which is called Attacking the Rim, My Unlikely Journey from NBA Legend to Business Leader to Big City Mayor to Mentor. I also have some choice words about Sports Illustrated Sports People of the Year, Just Stand Up and Just Sit Down Awards, and more, but first... Let's talk to the legend himself, Dave Bing. Well, my first question is, I mean, you, you've led this remarkable life from Hall of Fame player to businessman to Detroit mayor. Why did you choose now to write a book? I really never gave writing a book a lot of thought. Uh, until the end of my term in the mayor's office trying to figure out what I was going to do next. So um, my guy that was with me uh, who runs the program, um, Bob Warfield, started asking me in the the late part of my term in the mayor's office that you have had a pretty diverse life. And uh, outside of the people in Detroit, you know, a lot of people don't know who you are, what you did, what you accomplished, et cetera. So why don't you start thinking about writing a book? So after we left the mayor's office uh, in the, say, January, February time of this year, we started working on, on, on the book. And we finished up in um, September of this year. And so with that, uh, the toughest thing was trying to go back into my memory bank when I was a kid, trying to think of the things that I went through uh, all through my life. And uh, that, that was a difficult task, quite frankly, because I've done a lot of different things. But now uh, that's behind us, and so here we are. Wow. Um, was it difficult to go back and write about your childhood? Was it therapeutic? Was how did you find this process? No, I found it very rewarding because I had a really nice childhood. Um, you know, I came from uh, a family where I had my mother and my father. We were uh, my, my brother and my two sisters. And um, we, we lived in, in an area in Washington, D.C. that was a really strong community. So um, I had a lot of relatives that that lived in walking distance from my home. Um, I had my rec center that was in walking distance from my home. I had my schools, um, except for high school, that were in walking distance. So, you know, I saw my friends and family all the time. So going back to my childhood, I was mostly good memories. Mm. 
Now, everyone in life has a teacher, a parent, a mentor, and you've had such a remarkable journey. Who do you credit the most for your journey as an influence on your life? Well, I think it would start with my parents um, because neither one of my parents who migrated from the South in South Carolina to Washington, D.C. when they were young to start their family and uh, to look at you know, better opportunities uh, from, a, from a financial standpoint. Um, so my, my dad, uh, I was fortunate that I had a dad in the home that had a lot of influence on me. But because of the neighborhood that I grew up in, uh, there were a lot of other men uh, in that neighborhood um, who were role models. I mean, we, we had uh, all the way through kindergarten to high school. I mean, there were teachers, male teachers. Uh, then there was my coach at the high school level. But there were so many guys in my neighborhood as I grew up and was a you know a budding athlete um, who looked out for me and uh, gave me a lot of advice and were very supportive. So I'm fortunate to have had a lot of uh, males in my life as a support system. Mm. Now again, it's it's the varied success that you've had in your life that's so. I think remarkable and singular. What's what was what's the most challenging for you? Is it hoops? Was it business? Or was it being mayor of Detroit? Oh, absolutely, being mayor of Detroit. Uh, and, and I say that because of the situation that the city was in. The city was bankrupt, uh, over eighteen billion dollars in debt and long-term liabilities, and we had lost probably within a ten or fifteen the year period, about half of our population. When I came to Detroit, we were about 1.4 million people. When I took office, we were just north of 700,000 people. Mm. So a lot of people left the city, and with that, you know, left your middle class and your tax base. So most of the people left in Detroit were um, the underserved, uh, people who were a lot of un unemployed or underemployed. And the businesses that were here, a lot of our businesses left the city. So, um, you know, people started looking at the city as, as a death knoll. And we had to have somebody, uh, and it would happen to be me. I didn't know that at the time. But uh, we needed somebody that had integrity. We needed somebody that the citizens and the businesses could trust that they respected. And I think over 50-plus years in the city, I had that going for me. So the real challenge was that the, thing, the good things that I had done in the 50 plus years that I was here was at risk because, you know, most of the people respected me and liked me and liked what I was doing or what I had done. Then all of a sudden you become mayor in a horrendous situation. Uh, you're very lucky if you can have 51% of the people that continue to support you. So all of those people who I think liked me and respected me before I became mayor, when I had to make decisions that negatively impacted their lives, then that started to change the relationships. So that was very difficult for me, but it was something that had to be done. Somebody had to do it, and uh, I found myself in the position of doing that. What's, what's your opinion about the current state of the city? 
we're still struggling. Um, I don't think um, we've probably got several years, uh, even without the pandemic, we got several years to really try to straighten out our city again. I don't think we'll ever be, uh, surely in my lifetime for sure, a city that gets to be a million people again. Because so many people left, they didn't leave the state, they just left the city of Detroit. And uh, I'm not so sure, even though we've got a younger population that's starting to move into the city because the price is right, um, I don't think we're going to have a real big growth spurt anytime soon. So um, we've got to try to make sure that uh, we right-size our budget for what we got left. I mean, Detroit is 138 square miles. It's a huge city. And 700,000 people um, are not going to give you the financial strength uh, to to do what you need to do for the residents or the business. So we've got to figure out how to right-size the city, how to right-size the budget, and hopefully have a growth spurt at some time. So obviously, you know, this this is very challenging to be the mayor of Detroit, uh, running a business. How do you think, because this is a sports podcast and we're we're, we're obsessed with basketball on this podcast. How did basketball prepare you for life? If it did at all, maybe it didn't. But if it did, how did basketball prepare you for this life? Well, I think the biggest thing about basketball, it's a team sport. And even though you may have been the best player on the team, didn't necessarily mean that you were going to win the games. So you had to really figure out um, how to work with your teammates. You had to identify your strengths and your weaknesses and how to figure out the weaknesses and the strengths of your teammates and play to everybody's strength. So from a teamwork standpoint, um, every phase of my life, um, that's been very, very important. Then basketball is a competitive sport. And um, regardless of whether you're on a, on a great team or not, you're a competitor. And every night that you get out there to compete, uh, you want to win. You want to do well. You want to show the opposition that, uh, that you're a real strength. You're forced to be dealt with. And so... Um, from that vantage point, I would think uh, teamwork and competitiveness was the two drivers for me uh, that helped me not only with basketball, but also in the other phases of my life. Mm. Now, you played during very political times in this country, the 1960s and the 1970s. Did you feel the politics that were raging off the court at that time, or did it feel insulated to be playing pro ball? Um, there was a privilege playing pro ball. And because of that, um, I didn't have to go through some of the things that the normal average guy would have to go through. But at the same time, I was astute enough to understand the difficulties that people who didn't have the choices that I had, uh, I know what they were going through. So, um, from a political standpoint, I mean, even with, with, um, race issues, when I first got into the league in 1966, um, well, let me go back to college in 1962. I mean, there were places, um, schools that we played against 
where we were called names. I had only one other black guy on the team with me at Syracuse. And, uh, you know, people would, in the stands would call us the N-word, and we were in West Virginia, and that was a tough place. Uh, we were up at Penn State, up in the mountains. That was another tough place. Pittsburgh was a tough place. But it's nothing that I had not heard or had to deal with uh, because I came up at a time when uh, my parents are from the South. And so um, I didn't get used to it, and I didn't like it. But, but you dealt with it. And then, you know, as a pro player, I could even remember uh, in St. Louis, my first year, um, we couldn't stay in, in a hotel because we had black players. And uh, that was 1966, 1967. Um, so it's not been a long time ago when, uh, you know, the, the, the race issues and the politics of the country um, you know, it was very, very difficult. And, and we still find ourselves in a situation like that today. Mm. Now, today, we've seen um, this current generation of players taking the games into their hands and using their platform for politics in pretty unprecedented fashion. What is your response seeing this generation of politicized athletes? I'm um, elated that, that that's happening. Um, they do have a platform. I mean, the, the game itself is, is a major global business. And so people from all over the world idolize these athletes. And these athletes have a, a platform um, to do certain things from, whether it's the game itself, uh, whether it's something in the community, whether it's political, um, they do understand how important and large the platform is. And what gives them an advantage over the people from my era is the kind of money that they make today. Um, they make so much money. Um, they, with the second contract in most cases, can live the rest of their lives very comfortably. And so they can say things, do things, take some positions that it was tough for us to do in my era because we weren't making that kind of money where we were financially secure. Uh, we had some of the same issues, but we didn't have that platform. So as you look at the Bay's athletes, whether it's the NBA or the NFL in particular, guys do understand um, the kind of power that they had and they're using it in a very positive way. Mm. If there's one message that you would love for people to get out of your book, what would you like that message to be? Don't allow or accept people to tell you who you are or what you can be. Um, I try to tell the kids in our program today, they can be and do anything they want to do or be anybody that they want to be. They have to prepare for it. Nobody's going to give you anything. you got to earn your way. And all of the obstacles that are in front of a lot of our young men today, it's easy to accept that and use it as an excuse. But I don't want our young people to use their blackness uh, to use uh, whether or not they, they're poor from that kind of background, whether they come from family where there's no dad, 
um, whether or not they come up in the urban area in the school system that's uh, that's that's not very strong. We could use all of those as legitimate excuses not to do well. But we try to let people know, in spite of all of those obstacles, you can succeed. And uh, if we get the right people in front of them, letting them know that you love them, letting them know that you support them, listening to their side of everything, not trying to make them into me, um, I think there's a chance that we're going to have a lot of these young people across the country succeed. Mm. And you think you're creating a blueprint for other programs to follow? Absolutely. I think that we're doing it in Detroit. And if I were only to look at the NBA, you got another 29 to 30 cities where there's a franchise um, that can do the same thing that we're doing. And so um, when you start to get the multiplier effect, I mean, we're going to only impact so many kids here in the city of Detroit. But if this is a program um, that can be emulated in those other cities, um, that's where you, you really get the impact in terms of numbers. So we don't get overly concerned here in Detroit about numbers, trying to have, you know, 500 to 1,000 kids because our focus is one-on-one um, relationships. And if you don't have enough mentors for, for the boys, the program won't work. So I, I don't want to get ever get pushed and say I got to try to grow this program and get worried about numbers and, and don't think about the quality of the program. So um, I think this program is something that surely can be emulated around the country, and hopefully somebody else will see that and say I think I can do this too. So one more, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you. Are you an optimist or a pessimist about the future first of Detroit? Oh, I'm an optimist. There's no doubt in my mind about that. I always look at the glass being more than half full. And, uh, you know, where um, there's a lack of whatever, you know, you got to figure it out. Um, you know, once again, the easiest thing in the world is to quit and say, I can't do this. And I don't, want, I don't have that kind of attitude. I got a can-do attitude, and I got to find a way all the obstacles in my way, how to either get around or go through them. Mm. And then just lastly, you know, you're from, you're in Detroit, you're in Motor City, uh, you're in the town of Motown. What kind of music does Dave Bing listen to? Dave Bing's always been uh, in the Motown. Um, and I like jazz. Uh, you know, it's, it's, this is a, a music uh, city along with the automotive. But um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an old-style guy, so I've always liked jazz, even as a youngster. But uh, the Motown sound was something that I grew up with, and it's something that I still cherish today. Mm, the book is called Attacking the Rim, My Unlikely Journey from NBA Legend to Business Leader to Big City Mayor to Mentor. Is there anything, any last words, any last thoughts you want to share with us, Mr. Bing? I would suggest that that anybody who's looking uh, to get into this arena, um, I feel very optimistic that we could be helpful. We don't have all the answers, but we've learned a lot, and, and we're open-minded to learning. We want to share 
the experiences that we've had. Um, we want to share the experiences that boys in our program have had. And uh, anytime that, that, that you can get some of these kids that come from our program to come back and be mentors, uh, that's the biggest thing that I think we can do because we know we've made an impact on a boy's life if he wants to come and be part of our program as a mentor. Tremendous. Mr. Bing, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you so very much. Appreciate it. Wow. That was Dave Bing, ladies and gents. We'll be back right after this word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look, Sports Illustrated certainly got the headline right. This year, the magazine gave its much-celebrated Sports Person of the Year award to the activist athlete. During a year where the wall between politics and sports was not only breached but obliterated, it was really the only choice. After the police murder of George Floyd and the massive demonstrations that followed, athletes stepped up. They took to the streets, they pushed for people to vote, and they defended their right to speak out. The athletes that Sports Illustrated chose, however, say more about how the minders of sports are attempting to set the parameters and the historical memory of what proper athletic activism looked like in 2020. They included Kansas City star quarterback Patrick Mahomes, who pressured the NFL to recognize the right of players to protest for black lives. Brianna Stewart of the WNBA, who spoke out against bigotry while leading her Seattle Storm team to a title. LeBron James for leading voter registration drives, Naomi Osaka, the tennis star who elevated her game while elevating the names of people killed by police, and Chiefs lineman Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who won a Super Bowl and then left the NFL to join the front lines of the battle against COVID-19. These are all worthy people, but as a guy on Twitter who goes by Sackno reminded me, Noam Chomsky put it perfectly when he said, The smart way to keep people passive and obedient is to strictly limit the spectrum of acceptable opinion, but allow very lively debate within that spectrum. I'd rather celebrate those who operated outside of this spectrum, the athletes who did not accept the parameters of approved activism. We should start with those who helped us collectively expand our minds beyond the acceptable opinion opposed upon us about what protest should look like. I would start, in fact, with the players' strikes in August after the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. These were critical because they introduced the power of labor into the movement for black lives. The strikes came at a moment when the labor movement was largely absent from the summer's historic demonstrations. To represent that struggle, I'd go with George Hill of the Milwaukee Bucks, the first team to strike, setting off a chain reaction through just about every sports league. As Hill said, Until the world gets their shit together, I guess we're not going to get our stuff together. 
We're down here playing in the bubble to do these things for social justice and all that. And to see it all still going on and we're just playing the games like it's nothing, it's just a really messed up situation right now. Hill was brave enough to be critical of even being in the bubble, playing games while black people were being shot in the back, saying, we shouldn't have even come to this damn place. Coming here took all the focal points off what the issues are, but we're here, it is what it is. We can't do anything from here, but definitely when it's all settled, some things need to be done. These strikes helped refocus the world's attention on Jacob Blake. They were called off too soon as players were pressured by President Obama and franchise owners to channel their anger into electoral activity and team social justice committees. Now the groundwork for the politics of resistance that emerged from the bubble were laid by the NBA's bubble mates in the WNBA. There are many WNBA players one could laud. They were front and center every step of the way on the issues that animated 2020. The players forged a different path of struggle when they directly challenged WNBA franchise boss Atlanta Dream owner Kelly Loeffler and called for her removal from the league. Loeffler, in the middle of a pandemic and massive multiracial demonstrations, openly ran for Senate on a cynical and deeply racist platform, demonizing not only the Black Lives Matter movement, but also her own players for supporting the struggle. In response, her players turned the tables and not only called for the people of Georgia to vote for her opponent, Ebenezer Baptist Reverend Raphael Warnock, but also for her to be catapulted from the league, in effect, fired. As their union tweeted, enough, out. Atlanta Dream player Renee Montgomery, who was taking the year off to focus on social justice initiatives, asked for a meeting with Loeffler to discuss a meeting that Loeffler rebuffed. There were also players in the WNBA like Laisha Clarendon, who were not only calling for Loeffler's removal and defeat, but pushed for even newer parameters, saying, being black and non-binary is my superpower. Having a non-binary player not only be open about their identity, but also having announcers respect their pronouns felt like new ground was being broken beyond all previously known boundaries. From calling for a boss to be fired and being a league that shows it can celebrate black LGBT non-binary people, the WNBA perhaps deserves its own category for making its mark on 2020. Connected to the WNBA ecosystem, but also utterly singular and distinct in her journey was the great Maya Moore. I don't see how any celebration of the 2020 activist athlete could be complete without lauding Moore. Perhaps the greatest player in her sport Moore left in her prime two years ago to challenge the racism of the criminal justice system and fight for the freedom of a wrongly convicted man named Jonathan Irons. Jonathan Irons finally won his freedom in 2020, calling Moore his guardian angel. That Irons and Moore were also married this year is a beautiful coda on the story. It is also frankly incidental. Maya Moore brought the love of a life-affirming struggle to 2020, all by putting the games we play in stark perspective. While Hill pushed for the Bucks to strike, for radical action in the face of racism, Boston Celtics forward Jalen Brown pushed for a radical politics. Brown, like many athletes this year, took a knee during the anthem. When asked to explain why, he quoted someone outside the world of sports saying, Angela Davis once said that racism is so dangerous not because of individual actors, but because it's deeply embedded in the apparatus. I think about that quote a lot when I think about the national anthem. Brown also took part in the marches following the killing of George Floyd, posting his street actions to Instagram. 
Just 24 years old, Jalen Brown represents a wing of the struggle beyond LeBron, someone more than a decade younger who sees struggle beyond the voting booth as a path to liberation. That leaves Colin Kaepernick. I think 2020 was the most important year for Kaepernick's voice since his exile from the National Football League for speaking out against police violence. Kaepernick is an unapologetic radical in the best sense of the word in that he is pushing his audience to see brighter vistas beyond the immediate blight that engulfs our lives. Kaepernick made this known after George Floyd was killed and people protested in historic numbers when he said, when civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will rain down and when they do, they will land on deaf ears because your violence has brought this resistance. We have the right to fight back. Then as the call to defund the police rose from the streets, Kaepernick curated at Medium a series of articles called Abolition for the People, where leading scholars argued for full abolition of the police and the dismantling of our racist system of criminal justice. Writing one of the pieces himself in a series entitled The Demand for Abolition, Kaepernick wrote, it's been four years since I first protested during the Star Spangled Banner. At the time, my protest was tethered to my understanding that something was not right. I saw the bodies of black people left dead in the streets. I saw little to no accountability for police officers who had murdered them. It is not a matter of bad apples spoiling the bunch, but interlocking systems that are rotten to their core. And systemic problems demand systemic solutions. As pressure was placed on the sports world, from President Obama to the sports owners to the media, for athletes to channel their anger at police violence into voter registration, Kaepernick stood against the flow of rocky waters and walked against the political rapids. These people, Hill, Clarendon, Moore, Brown, and Kaepernick, represent a different manifestation of the activist athlete, something less safely consumable than the choices by Sports Illustrated, but perhaps far more important, the desire for the people to enforce their will on a society that is fundamentally broken, not merely with laments, but solutions. Striking, protesting, holding up radical theorists, and articulating solutions. Those are my activist athletes of 2020. Efforts to throw them down the memory hole, to in effect erase them from the history of 2020, must be fought with ferocity. Their ideas will be needed in the years to come. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to, and I, I love this story so much, um, a midfielder for the Queens Park Rangers soccer team. His name is Ilias Chair. He's from Morocco. And his Nigerian teammate, Bright Osai Samuel. What they did was they kneeled and they raised their fist right in front of the Millwall supporters section 
Now, if you don't know anything about Millwall, they're one of the most racist teams in all of soccer. They booed their own players the previous game for taking a knee before the game. And so this was uh, Ilias Chair, and and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing his name, and Bright Osai Samuel uh, putting it right in their face. Uh, Ilias scored a goal. They raised their fist. They took a knee. Totally badass. They get the Just Stand Up Award this week. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award this week. Sit your ass down. Of course, goes to the Millwall fans. Don't boo your players for taking a knee. But I'll tell you something. It's a hell of a sneak preview into what might happen here in these uh, United States once they start letting fans back in. We will see then whether players have the courage and whether teams are willing to back their players when they choose to exercise radical dissent. Because there's one thing that we've seen over the last couple of months. It's that when you take a knee with team approval, when you take a knee without fans there who might boo you, I mean, that's more the commodification of dissent and trying to appeal to a woke fan base than it is um, an act of radical dissent. Um, and I think what we're going to see going forward is a lot of situations where people are going to have to step up in the face of some difficult situations and then taking a knee is going to hit like it used to. And for that, we got to give props to the players on Queens Park Rangers for showing us the way. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much, David Tigabu, the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Thank you so much to everybody out there listening. If you like the show, leave a rating, make a little remark on it. Listen to back shows as well. Our one last week with the producer of Queen's Gambit is setting all kinds of podcasting records. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. <laughs>